This podcast is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. It not only educates its students about today's communication industry, but it produces innovative leaders. For more information, go to ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Alex Dagan, an evolutionary biologist and an author of a book about his efforts to protect wildlife in war-torn Afghanistan. He recently wrote a book called The Snow Leopard Project and Other Adventures in War Zone Conservation. Alex, uh, you've got a new book coming out, The Snow Leopard Project and Other Adventures in War Zone Conservation. Now, that's a pretty broad title. Uh, tell us about the book. Yeah, it's uh it's about my experience and the experiences of others, particularly those working with uh, Afghans as well as their nationals, working with the Wildlife Conservation Society and setting up the first national park in Afghanistan's history. And one of the things I wanted to do in the book was provide a different view of Afghanistan than I think the one most people get on the news. Uh, so people may not realize, but Afghanistan is this amazing country that much as it was a cultural Silk Road through which Asia and Europe uh, traveled and for, for literally thousands of years, uh, it was a biological Silk Road. We had animals in this country from, from brown bears from, from Europe, uh, polecats, European fauna and flora, we have animals from Indo-Malaysia, uh, such as flying squirrels. Uh, and we have animals from, hyena, uh, from Africa, such as hyenas, in this single country. And because of its location at this place of unprecedented terrain, literally where all these different mountain ranges come together, they have created a spectacular amount of habitat. And that habitat has allowed for lots of different places uh, for different species. Uh, and we don't think about it. We don't think about uh, what's in the country uh, that's out there. The other, the other piece was it's not only a biological story, but it's a geological story. It's a historical look at deep history in Afghanistan from all the empires that have passed through there uh, up until recent times and sort of woven together to tell the story of what it took to create this national park. Uh, and now there are four national parks in Afghanistan because of this program. You went there and started that project in, what, 2006, if I remember correctly? That's right, yeah. And how long uh, did it take you to actually get the that first park established? The first park was created in about 2009, uh, and uh, it was... You know, it was a, uh, the original title for the book, which which I'm personally fond of, was the Snow Leopard Startup, and uh, the editor nixed it because they 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 believed it sounded too much like the operating system from Apple, which had <laughs> which had taken 
taken the title, but in fact, it very much was like running a startup. We actually started the program running out of something that resembled a 1950s motel uh, where the entire staff was working in the picnic tables, the computer rooms, or just sitting on our beds with laptops. Uh, and within 30 days of getting into the country, uh, we started the first expeditions in 30 years uh, into Afghanistan. And there is, you know, it was how do you actually start up a program from scratch? And in particular, how do you do it in a place in the middle of fundamental change uh, and one where mines and insurgents and uh, unexploded ordnance and uh, just, you know, weeks of roadless areas. And weeks was how long it would take us to, you know, on horseback, on the backs of yaks, on uh, the backs of, of donkeys, literally to get into these habitats and be able to survey for uh, these iconic species like the snow leopard. I know the Snow Leopard Project is the title of the book. Uh, however, if people are going to read this thinking that it's all about snow leopards, that's truly not the case. Yeah, you've, uh, uh, and in fact, uh, that's an important part of the book, uh, but it, it is about so much more because Afghanistan is about so much more. Uh, it was about uh, the surveys we did on the eastern forests of Afghanistan, the eastern forest complex, which borders Pakistan in this place called Nuristan, uh, that is known as the land of light or the land of the enlightened. And uh, these are dense cedar and oak forests uh, that you never really see portrayed on the media. But these are also some of the most dangerous places on Earth. And Nuristan was a place that up until recently was called Kafiristan, the land of the unbelievers, uh, because the people there were animists, and some people even thought they were followers of the god Dionysus. Uh, and, and countless empires, Alexander the Great, passed through this area, uh, as, did, as did others. Uh, and it, was a, it, it is one of those, those boundaries and one of those provinces where the people really couldn't be taken over. Uh, they would, the mountains were so steep that at certain places where the valleys would come together, you could almost reach out to the other side of the valley. Uh, uh, they were, there were only tens of feet across uh, and just these impossible mountains. And in these places, we were looking for things like the Persian leopard, uh, but also these really fantastical creatures like the musk deer, which is one, one of those animals wow. where this idea of perfume comes from. Right. Uh, uh, but we called them something else. We called them the vampire deer. Talk about if you could give the audience just a, a snapshot of the various topographies there. You've, you've hinted at it a little bit. But when we watch the news, it just looks like it's mountainous and rugged and that's it. Uh, but reading what you're talking about, there, there is a lot of diversity there. Yeah, so you have everything from, you know, these Sahel-like uh, pistachio forests on verdant green rolling hills in the northwest of the country uh, and the north of the country. You have deep, hot deserts in the south 
that are almost impossible for for animals to cross with species that live there that are endemic to those. You have um, these dense oak and cedar uh, as well as pine forests that, you know, envelop the mountainsides of the east. Uh, and then you have this huge plateau in the middle of the country uh, called the Hazarajat Plateau uh, that where, where many parts of it look much like the Grand Canyon uh, where, you, where you have these multi-layered cliff sides that are filled with marine fossils because at one point they were even the bottom of an ocean wow. uh, and then were pushed up to 9,000, 10,000 feet and higher. And then finally in the far northeast, that, that peninsula that sticks out is called the Wakhan Corridor. And this is the western end of the Himalayas. And here you have incre- incredible glaciers and high peaks and these U-shaped valleys uh, that the word Pamir comes from, uh, that where the bottom of the valley is at seven, 8,000 feet, uh, and it's populated with uh, incredible species like the Marco Polo deer, uh, the Marco Polo sheep, which was uh, uh, the biggest of the mountain sheep. It has these I call them the Princess Leia sheep because the, the <laughs> horns literally cur- curl around. But if you follow the length of the horns, they're six feet long along the length of both those horns together. So these are enormous sheep that live in, you know, sex-segregated groups uh, for much of the year and then get together uh, once a year to battle for the right to mate in these sort of titanic battles that happened on the roof of the world. And then in this place, right, this was literally part of the Silk Road. You have these petroglyphs from 1,500 years ago that are just scattered all along these footpaths because there are no roads at this point uh, where, you know, you have pictures of Ibex and Marco Polo sheep uh, carved into them. And then you've got these totally unique populations of people, Turkish-speaking Kyrgyz nomads, uh, that that live in yurts, as well as the Ismaili, uh, who are sort of ancient Persians that follow the Aga Khan uh, and speak speak their own language and dialect, uh, th- that uh, both live and share this habitat at the roof of the world. Uh, these are all uh, spectacular places, uh, and they're all unique. And again, this is not always the image uh, you see of Afghanistan, unfortunately. No, unfortunately, you get the image of uh, extremely hostile environment uh, with uh, warlike people. Uh, talk about the politics or the situation you went into in, in 2006. Uh, what were the immediate barriers? There is a few. Uh, but interesting enough, one of the one of the things that was the least barrier was the Afghan government or the people. Really? Um, uh, Afghanistan for me was the easiest place I've done conservation. And I've worked in places such as Russia in Central and South America, in Madagascar, uh, and in the United States. And uh, despite the landmines, I felt that, uh, and the security situation, there wasn't a place where really people kind of were more receptive to us than Afghanistan. And I think that was for a couple of reasons. First, 
you know, 75% of the populace to 80% when I was there uh, were entirely dependent on the natural resources. So they got the link that if the natural resources went, so did they, right? And those resources were the very resources that were supporting the wildlife that was there. Second, these are people who have been refugees for 30-something years. And for them, it was a question of identity. It was recognizing that the wildlife that actually made Afghanistan unique, and this includes things like the Persian cheetah and the Persian leopard and the snow leopard. And and up until the 1960s, there were tigers in Afghanistan. Uh, There may have been lions in the south. It's not a, you know, we don't have a lot of records. We don't have any records of that. Uh, but there is an incredible number of cat species of grizzly bears, the brown bears, as well as the Asiatic black bears in the country. Uh, this incredible, fantastical animal called uh, the marfor, which literally translates in Persian to the snake eater, uh, that had these twin spiraling unicorn-like horns on top of its head. Uh, and the vampire deer, the musk deer, which literally... Which, is this cute little Bambi-esque deer that has giant, you know, two-inch fangs coming out of its mouth, uh, all within this country. Um, and uh, people got that. They got that, you know, this is what it meant. To protect the wildlife is what it meant to be Afghan. That this wildlife was reclaiming the wildlife was actually a way of reclaiming their own identity. And, and, and that made it a lot easier uh, the, the, the second challenge was really more, and, and it was actually quite incredible that we did not face serious problems of corruption, uh, which a lot of people did. The biggest issue for us was the safety. There were just some, we didn't have guns. Uh, we, you know, did not have, uh, we didn't carry guns with us. We, we had people who were trained in security, uh, but, you know, we're not armed in any way. Uh, we're not, uh, you know, we didn't wear uh, Kevlar uh, with us. Um, you know, we didn't travel in. We lived outside of, you know, any of the diplomatic protected areas. We were living in the center of the city, and our office was in the center of the city. Uh, so because of that, we did have to really think about um, security in a different way. And part of it, which was, how do you make sure that you aren't seen as a target? How do you make sure that the character of your organization is one that's appreciated by the local people and with the local people, which is one of the problems we've had in conservation, where conservation at times has been seen as, as a form of colonialism. Helping empower individuals was actually critical to our work and really working with a large diversity of individuals. Uh, but we still had problems with, with, you know, dealing with landmines in a country that was, you know, one of the top five most, most mined countries in the world. Uh, and with security, we would drive through miles of poppy fields uh, and really did not, you know, we painted our cars. Uh, we would get our, our, our four-wheel drives white, which was the color that the U.N. used. And we would repaint them specifically so we didn't look like a target, which the UN was becoming as as rather uh, soft targets. Uh, but one of the other biggest problems was just kind of the bureaucracy of international aid. And at this time, 70 percent of the aid going to Afghanistan was coming back to the donor countries. And, uh, you know, there was 
there is a lot of money being spent in Kabul, but very little money was actually being spent in the places where people need it. So we made an effort as the Wildlife Conservation Society to be actually frugal with our funding, to, uh, to be frugal with our salaries, and to invest in the Afghan people, including training as many Afghans as we could as conservation biologists. And some of those Afghans are now getting PhDs uh, in the West and are, you know, as good, if not better than me as a conservation biologist. They definitely have an extraordinary amount of field time. Uh, and that will be the, probably the most important thing we could have done uh, for the country is, you know, is the people who are involved in investing in them and making them successful in what we're doing. But the bureaucracy was an issue. And my favorite story, if I can just sure. tell you one other quick story, was um, there was a lot, when we got there, there was actually a lot of donor agencies, uh, the multilateral banks and bilateral development agencies and large UN organizations uh, that were all involved in little bits and pieces with respect to this national park, but no one was working together. And some of the people were actually, some of the organizations were actually working in contravention of Afghan law uh, that was happening there. And, and one, so we decided to have this lunch. Uh, we decided to have a free lunch, which people say there's no such thing as a free <laughs> lunch. We, we, we had this amazing cook uh, in our office because it was a lot safer to eat in our office than to go out and look for a meal. We're, you know, now Facebook and Google and all those places replicate our startup solution in terms of, uh, you know, getting their employees to stay in. But we did it with this cook. And what we would do was cook this spectacular meal. And then we invited people to come for that lunch. And we called the organization the unimportant, uh, unofficial uh, conservation coordinating committee for Afghanistan and it had two rules. One was if you're not invited, you're now considered to be invited. And if you come, you will not only get a free lunch, uh, but that you would get all the data that my organization had painfully collected, including, uh, you know, historical data on, bio on biology in Afghanistan from papers that we could dig up from natural history museums and expeditions and share all of it to anyone who came. And then, and we would ask people to share what they were doing, and we would share everything we were doing. Uh, and then the last rule was uh, really that the group had zero power whatsoever, and if it sought to achieve any power, uh, it had no power. It turned into the most effective uh, donor coordinating committee in Afghanistan. We got all these organizations to actually start sharing what they're doing, changing the individual nature of the of the projects. Uh, and it was it, it just worked out really well, and it led to the development of this national park with lots of people from UNDP and UNEP uh, to the United Nations uh, Office of Project Services, uh, UNOPS, that, that were all members and all uh, contributing to the success we saw in Afghanistan. And uh, that was a great thing. It was an initially a barrier, but with a little bit of... Uh, little bit of perseverance and a little bit of uh, rice uh, and and lamb, we uh, we were able to to have a success. I know you've worked in ninety plus countries and and six continents around the world, but uh, trust always has to be a factor in whatever you're doing. And it sounds like what you just described were ways of 
building trust. Was that the most important factor that you had to get trust of the people you were working with and for? Trust was definitely really important. And I think respect is the other important. So we made an effort to speak Dari uh, and to, we made an effort. um, Part of that respect was not carrying guns. Uh, Part of that effort was uh, my own wife was actually embedded in the Ministry of Agriculture with the people working on natural conservation. So she was working alongside the government officials that we needed to work with. Uh, we made it a point to uh, be there with them, as did others, such as the United Nations Environmental Program that was co-located with the National Environmental Protection Agency. I want to call them out specifically because they follow that strategy was really important. Uh, we made an effort of meeting with people and listening to people. And uh, even in the field, we would sleep in their houses uh, because, uh, you know, it was actually really important for us to be part of that community within what we're trying to do. And I think two little times in conservation, we tend to fight against human behavior rather than harness it. And this was an opportunity to really be able to, 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 to highlight the respect that we had for the individuals. Uh, and, you know, it was quite easy to do. The Afghans are incredible people. They are people who have survived, uh, you know, three major conflicts over the last 30 years. Uh, and despite all of that, um, they continue to work hard. They continue to, 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 to be joyful. They continue to, to support each other. Uh, and um, there are challenges, there are serious challenges in the country, the governance of the country. Uh, but these are, these are some of the kindest people that you will ever meet. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University is comprised of five schools, each offering a variety of majors and programs for students who want to pursue communication-related careers. From the highly technical information and telecommunication systems to the theoretical communication studies and everything in between, programs in the college offer students both the fundamentals of communication practice and the tenacity and skills to further advance the field. In addition, the college is home to four centers and institutes that enable students to gain hands-on experience and learn new skills. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Let's talk a little bit, if we could, Alex, about uh, at this end. You were there for the Wildlife Conservation Society. Uh, You've also, in your past, been the chief scientist for uh, the USAID. Uh, are there conflicting goals between government and government funding of projects and the independent work that you were doing? I joined uh, the U.S. Agency for National Development as their chief scientist and helped institute a set of reforms under under the Obama administration 
that were really based around science, technology, and innovation, but also deeply, um, deeply influenced by what I saw the agency doing on the ground around the world and where it worked and where it didn't work. Um, and that was, that you know, the experience in Afghanistan wasn't probably one of the best experiences. USAID is filled with, you know, some of the most incredible public servants we, we have in the world. And they are, um, you know, they're exceptional people. They, they, they go to countries that are, you know, uh, have serious governance problems that don't have the amenities of, you know, many other countries that our diplomats uh, go to, and they're devoted to helping the people of those countries do better. That being said, in places like Afghanistan, where there is, you know, unbelievable public attention and public oversight, and in particular congressional oversight, that is a place where there's a lot of pressure, and that pressure sometimes uh, leads to to results that uh, are not the best things for the country. One of those one of those pressures or one of those conflicts we had is uh, we were constantly being asked about a burn rate. How fast were we spending money? Uh, and so, it, so you know, when we were particularly trying to be frugal with money, in the form of we weren't staying in the most expensive you know, luxury hotel in the capital, but we had gotten a small guest house and we had gotten a, you know, mid-size, relatively inexpensive office um, within Kabul. Um, those things you know, were frowned upon on us. Uh, we, we were asked constantly, why weren't we, uh, why at least by some officials we were asked, why weren't we just bringing in expertise from the West rather than investing in the training of, of Afghans to do the same job? And it seemed to me uh, that those pressures that were put onto them by, you know, at the much, at the highest levels, what are your burn rates, uh, overtook really the understanding of what it meant to do development in these countries. Uh, in the long run, most people actually want to to build these countries by having, you know, the countries where USAID works to having economic growth, to having good governance, to having uh, support for humanitarian responses, to, to supporting education uh, within these countries, uh, to preventing environmental degradation. All those things allow us to have more stable places, uh, places where we are not sending military troops, places where the individuals uh, can live in peace and harmony, where human rights abuses are not happening, places where individuals can live in a civil society that respects the rule of law, and ultimately places that become important trading partners of the United States. And that benefits us uh, and the American people in the long run. So in the long run, we all have the same objectives, but sometimes those objectives get perverted. I wanted to ask you also, uh, beyond the establishment of the National Park, which was huge, uh, and you say there are now more national parks, uh, you were also involved, were you not, in uh, creating some laws on biodiversity and, and also on illegal wildlife trade? Yeah, um, and... and 
Uh, we did. We that was part of our project, but but I w- I would definitely point to uh, the UN Environmental Program, and particularly they had a, a really gifted lawyer, Belinda Bowling, uh, South African, who was involved with the passing of the environmental laws. A lot of our work was to take the concept of these parks, which which had been uh, w- where the idea had been proposed, uh, but they had not been gazetted and placed into the law prior to the Soviet invasion. That was about to happen, and then everything was put on pause for 30 years. And we needed to go to see, was there wildlife left? What was the status of these places? Were these places still worthy of protection? And what did we need to, need to do to make sure that they were protected? Well, one of those things, and one of the sort of paradoxical uh, results was the international humanitarian community and the military forces that were there uh, un, sort of knowingly actually caused another problem to happen that was not happening before, which was trade in wildlife and in particular in furs of things like snow leopards and Persian leopards. Uh, and so there was open markets within U.S. military bases, within the um, within the the NATO led fate forces that were there within within their bases and on a street called Chicken Street in Kabul uh, that were actively selling furs of things like the snow leopards, uh, even the cheetah, uh, that were driven by the presence of the international humanitarian uh, community and the military forces that were there. So we started working to, uh, A, one, raise awareness that these animals are actually protected by Afghan law, international law, U.S. law, and that trade in them would be illegal, and the taking of them was illegal. Uh, And in fact, we created these posters that for a long time in the old Kabul airport, the only thing you saw flying in and out of that airport were our posters. Uh, And we started actually working with the airport officials uh, to start the interdiction. But probably some of the most rewarding work that we did was working with um, uh, the military police on the bases to start shutting down the trade. And the really interesting thing that happened when we started shutting down the trade was I got a call from the traders themselves. And they they came to me and they said, uh, we'd like to see you. And I had this vision that they were going to come in with, with old school violin cases and Tommy guns right. and just sort of take me out as I was you know, meeting them in my office, and that would be the end of me. But I took the meeting anyway, and what they told me was really surprising was, we know that you're running these training programs for all these other people in terms of what wildlife to protect and what we need to look out for and what we shouldn't be trading. Um, could you run those trading programs for us? And the very last thing I did in the country before I left was to run a, a training session for the shopkeepers in terms of which animals how you identify which animals were endangered, how do you identify them, why we needed to protect them. Uh, and it was, it was phenomenal um, and surprising for me. So ultimately, you know, it was shutting down demand, increasing enforcement, uh, but then it was actually seeing the, the shopkeepers as partners. And the one, the one issue, I, the one project I never uh, got to do with them was actually could we create a, a schema where we could have, you know, uh, 
shops that that we would publicly advertise as free of endangered species and encourage people to shop there, uh, increasing sort of the the incentives for all the shopkeepers to come on board. Um, WCS, after I left, started actually working with bases with training military in the United States before they would come over uh, on wildlife. And one of the things I was really uh, impressed with was just how vigilant and excited everyone was from young soldiers that were 22 years old that were spouting snow leopard facts to me that I perhaps didn't even know to the Afghans at the airport that were seizing so many furs that they would insist every time I was trying to leave the country uh, that I would inspect everything that they did and inevitably I would come close to missing my flight every single time because they were so proud of what they had accomplished. Uh, it gave me hope that there's great hope in this country. The fact that there are multiple national parks now in Afghanistan that are visited by Afghans, uh, tourism was the number two source of revenue in this country, gives me hope. It must be nice, and I know you're always looking for your next project and over the hill, but it must be nice to feel that you've got a living legacy in a, in a place like Afghanistan. Yeah, and it's a legacy of a lot of people. Um, I don't want to take the credit for it because there's so many different people right. that are involved. The book is based on my perceptions and, and the piece that I played a part in. Uh, but but obviously the most important people in, in the whole thing were the Afghans themselves uh, who decided to join up uh, and work with us and make this happen. Um, and they're incredible, and many of which are still uh, working for WCS and making it a success. And some of which are now in the United States finishing up their PhDs. Those guys are the the rock stars. Alex, it's always fascinating to talk to you. I can't wait for your next project. Best of luck on the book and go get them. Thank you so much, Tom. It's an honor to be on your show. Today, we've been talking with evolutionary biologist and author Dr. Alex Dagan about his efforts to protect wildlife in war-torn Afghanistan. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or you can review it through any of your podcast outlets. Also, WOUB has launched a brand new podcast called Lifespan. Episode 5 was just released, and it's about end-of-life care. On Lifespan, you'll hear stories about encounters with the healthcare system, and each show contains stories bound by a common theme, a person's personal journey through a particular type of medical trauma.